Hi, everyone. My name is Dahlia Strom, and you're listening to the Decision Makers Podcast. We're back with season two with a new name, new feel, and all new guests. We're going to be chatting with industry professionals and entrepreneurs about insights, strategies, and behind-the-scenes approaches to support your initiatives. Hope you guys enjoy. Hi, everybody. We're back. And this is the first episode of season two of now called Decision Makers Podcast. I am excited to have with me Andrew Ice, who is the Vice President of Marketing for By Chloe. Thanks, Andrew, for being here. How's it going? It's going great. And I, I really appreciate being the first guest on Decision Makers. That's that's a pretty incredible honor. So thank you so much for the invite. Yeah. Um, we had a long summer and I'm excited to be back here at WeWork, who is gracious enough to allow us to use their podcast facility, which is beautiful. And um, you and I actually had lunch the other day, so we did like a customer tasting, and I thought it would be great to feature you and hear more about the exciting things that you're working on. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that is most fun about being in a food business is is tasting new foods, innovating. So I think that was a great opportunity to bring you in on the in the inside and understand a little bit more about how we approach uh, the innovation process. So funny enough, I would eat lunch at By Chloe anyway. I like it. I I am more driven towards a plant based diet. But you kind of categorize yourself within like this mission driven concept. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one of the things that's been great about By Chloe's perspective, uh, and they've been around for four years, is that by delivering for the consumer uh, indulgent, approachable, delicious food, that in itself, that that is plant-based, of course, that in itself ultimately drives uh, new consumers to try a new type of food. And it takes people that are sort of hardcore people who are only about meat and never thought about plant-based, and it gives this new lens and new opportunity for people to sort of sample something new and different. And I think through that, you start to see a lot of consumers becoming more comfortable with trying plant-based food. And the ultimate result of that is if a lot of people start to change their diet a little bit, you see the change, right? You'll see changes in terms of animal consumption, sustainability, and all sorts of uh, important uh, sustainable issues across the front. So I'd say for me, it's not about leaning in with a mission. It's about really leaning in with food that you love that, like to your point, is amazing. It's a great burger. It's a great salad, but also in the end has a great net impact on the environment. So as a marketer, you're still collecting a lot of data points. Do you feel like these in-person tastings provide a ton of value? Are you collecting more information from online? What does that look like on your end? Yeah. I mean, we changed things from, say, the way I would have approached it at a larger company. Um, Because you came from Anheuser-Busch. That's right. And at a larger company, you know, uh, our innovation pipeline is invariably 18 months. You know, we want to pilot and move quickly, but often we want to also partner with retailers that have lead times where they want you to sell in six months in advance. It makes it very hard to be scrappy and to move as quickly as you'd like to when you really just want to get learnings and optimize and go. And so in this case, I think we were able to do just that. I'd say a month before we, we actually launched, we sat around with the management team and said, we want to make chicken a bet for us. We want to try it and see whether consumers uh, would, would enjoy a, a few different chicken options, see which are the best, and get feedback. And by chicken, how do you pronounce it? It's like chicken or uh, chicky? <laughs> yeah, the founder and creative director is incredibly smart in giving like really fun, memorable names. So there was chicky chicky is the chicken tenders. Chicky chicky parm parm is uh, the chicken parm. Uh, there's a, a Chinese chicken salad and a fall harvest salad. So those were the 
four options uh, that uh, are available currently in just the Lafayette store. And the goal there is get consumers uh, aware of the offering uh, through some marketing tools and ultimately get quick feedback. So as simple as putting up some signage and putting some stickers on the items with a QR code and saying, we'd love to know your feedback. Uh, Let us know what you liked and what you didn't like. We get some quantitative and some qualitative measures. And of course, we look at sales data. And through that lens, we're able to make within, I would say, two to three weeks, a really good call on whether something should be scaled up, uh, killed, or potentially modified. You know, what we haven't launched nationally, we're still going back to the kitchen with a culinary team who are incredible and just sort of digging around and thinking, well, how do we make this even better? Uh, Because I think each of those ideas has something about it. And a lot of times, it is not the literal thing you launch. But it's the starting point for a conversation to optimize and get it to that launch ready stage. So you came from Anheuser and <laughs> Anheuser Busch, uh, so big corporation, long longer term lead time. Um, you you don't have to be a scrappy at a at a large corporation. How do you shift your mindset when you come into? I mean, would you consider by Chloe a startup or um, past the startup stage? Semi. Yeah, I mean, I think I do use startup. I don't think that's probably the best word. I think of it as, as to me, marketing is down to two sort of facets, I feel like. It is a challenger brand, and it is those sort of you know category leaders. Bud Light, Lysol, category leaders. You know, you have virtually 100% awareness. Uh, you have a brand that its biggest challenge isn't people knowing you, but it's reminding them reasons to continue to use you and that, that it doesn't become my mom's uh, or my dad's beer or cleaning product, right? It's how do you stay relevant to a 20 to 30 something person when they've seen this overconsumption occur? And of course, this generation definitely is smarter about saying, hey, I'm not going to use a product just because it's everywhere. Right. And I think the challenger brands have, I think, to me, a more fun challenge uh, uh, for them as a business owner, sort of to say, how do I reposition the bigger guys? What is it about the category leaders that are not satisfying needs? And how do I find that way to position that uh, with the right message, the right creative hook, and to drive that forward? And for me, that is sort of what opens up the door to this whole new world of experiences that I don't know necessarily I was getting as much at, at my first, call it eight years, which were all larger brand experiences. So when you first joined, I mean, it's been a couple of months, right? Remind me, when did you join by Chloe? Yeah, about three months. Three months. So when you first joined, you had immediate ideas. Funny enough, you walked into the store that I was sitting in. So I was in uh, by Chloe, sitting in one of the swings, having a meeting. And you walked in and you were super excited about like, um, it was a social initiative that you had launched. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And it was even before you started working there. Yeah, um, I think... Well, I think the first thing is in order to get into a new opportunity, I think you have to have a lot of ideas. Yeah. Um, I, I take the interview process very seriously. I'm sure most people do, but I, I like to think several layers deep and really get into the weeds in terms of what I would do if I was actually running that business, you know? And, and so from that perspective, um, I absolutely was thinking about some of those things in the ingoing conversation. 
if I can be transparent, I don't 100% remember the social idea that uh, I had at that time. <laughs> See, you have me somewhat stumped. Sorry. But I will let you know there was probably 10 different ideas and, and um, you know, how many of them actually come to light. You know, it's it's to me a bit of a, uh, um, that sort of a, a funnel, if you will, where, you know, a lot of ideas up here, a lot of fun thinking that goes in. I like to think that I refine them as I go along. And I think that's where it's key to have a really strong team because you want someone to help figure out amongst all the good ideas, which are the ones that have the most legs and momentum and can make the most impact. And I think that's somewhat the trickiest part of being an idea person is having a good person or people with you to sort of help you kill or scale the right ideas. Right. It's funny. um, I actually think the idea was based around pride. Do you remember that? Oh, right. So that was actually a fun one where when I was interviewing with, uh, again, with uh, Sam, the founder, and uh, she said, uh, well, you know, we're doing something with the Happy Hippie Foundation. It's Miley Cyrus's foundation. It's very much uh, LGBTQ related, and it really is a great opportunity for us, and we're passionate about being a part of that cause. Um, and we want to do something. And the idea that sort of has been passed around is we'll put some signage, some color signage all across the store and you know, really make it vibrant and colorful. And she said, I'm not sure that's the approach I want to take. And I said, I think I love where you're going with this. Tell me more. And she said, well, what if we did something that was a little bit more memorable? And I said, absolutely. I think the key for me is not to just do things for the sake of doing them. I think a lot, if you walk around uh, 10 years ago, maybe through Pride, you wouldn't see this much uh, of the color sort of signage as being the one thing. And now every single store has a lot of colors, a lot of vibrancy. It's not wrong, but if you were to say that you have a limited budget, which of course, a brand like ours is going to be smarter and scrappier with our budget, you're going to want to find a way to make the most impact. And so she went back to the drawing board with her team. And again, this is all before I started working within that in that interview period and came up with an awesome execution. And the, my only point that I made was we are an inherently Instagrammable brand. You see that when you're in the store, it's got, it's got fun and it's got um, that, that really perfect point of view and humor that makes people want to take pictures. Why would your, why would your uh, sort of activation for something like LGBTQ events not be equally social and not be equally Instagrammable? So for this one, it was uh, really cool. On the side of the Bleecker Street store, uh, there was uh, basically a signage that said, for every person person that takes a picture of this sort of side of the wall, we're going to donate a dollar towards the Happy Hippie Foundation. And there was a really fun like balloon element that was like hanging up there, which didn't tell people to do this, but most consumers got that if you did a hand imprint uh, right by the balloons, it looked like you were holding some really cool balloons with the signage in it. Cute. I really like that. Totally give credit to the creative team for taking like sort of a very, very sort of high level thought. But the thought was Instagrammable brands should be leaning in with that type of activations and not sort of following the crowd, which kind of feels like anyone could do that. And with a great creative team, I think they could step it up. And I absolutely think they crushed it. Right. And and I think that that's always a fear, right? Like how much information do I give away? Can I give ideas and not take, not take ownership of them, right? Um, because people don't necessarily want other people to execute on their ideas. And I appreciate that you were able to work collaboratively with uh, the team there because they were interested in you. They were passionate about the ideas that you were bringing to the table. And your mindset has always been, if I have one idea, I have 50 other ideas. So I'm not worried if they take one of them, right? 
Absolutely. And that was one of the reasons that I was you know, instantly uh, uh, you know, interested in the company was to have an interview where we were doing real creative feedback and there was a collaborative element of what we were doing. It made me feel comfortable that this would be the kind of place where we could work together and, and, and do great things. And I think so far that's been a positive and you know, that relationship's hopefully only going to grow over time and really start to put forward, I think, some really big league marketing ideas that, uh, that I can't wait to see where they'll go. Something that I talk about in some of my classes, and I, I was thinking about this the other day with uh, the Buy Chloe customer. Is a Buy Chloe customer only vegan or uh, vegetarian? Uh, tell, and do you have to think about like the customer profile? Do you do you get a little bit granular with like the interest graft, and how do you reach them? How do you connect with them? Yeah, I think I think it is much, much, much more broad than that. Right. Um, and I, when you look at statistics, maybe three to four percent of people are are vegan or vegetarian. It's not a large set of the population. When you think about uh, really people who are whether it's flexitarian or just generally speaking interested in. Uh, having a little bit more plant-based in their diet, the numbers go through the roof. It could be 40 or 50% in uh, total US, and I bet in urban cities like New York, it's it's close to 100% of people. So with that knowledge, uh, to me, it's really talking about someone who's like myself, who wants to do a little bit more in the plant-based space, but really just in the end, uh, wants delicious food. And I think that's our number one mandate is, man, that burger, when you see it on social, when you see it in the store, you've got to look at it and be like, man, I can't wait to eat that. Your first thought shouldn't be, oh, I'm really great. I'm really great for me that I'm sacrificing today to be able to do something for the world. If that's your response, then we failed as a culinary team and I've yet to hear anyone with that response. Interesting. Um, and I, I would agree, right? Like you want to be able to, to maintain um, your lifestyle without necessarily having to say, I have to eat something that's not as delicious as other food that I'm accustomed to or other people are accustomed to, right? Um, and and I will give you guys credit. The flavor profile of the food has been pretty good since I've I've been going there. So kudos to your culinary team. <laughs> Completely. They're, they're, uh, it's a very strong team and the business is growing quickly. You know, We had a store open that you went to the opening as well a couple yeah. months ago on 1385 Broadway. Um, Canada should be opening up in a month for their first location. A fourth London opened up this year and we've already announced uh, a 54th and Lex this year. And then I think that one of the coolest ones will be in hopefully December, um, the old Union Square Cafe that one, uh, we're taking over that uh, that lease. And so we will be in one of the most uh, iconic sort of Union Square areas and being a part of a really exciting culture for us. That might be my most exciting moment. <laughs> I'm so excited for you guys. Um, so you guys are rapidly opening up stores. What do you have to take into account when you when you think through that strategy? Because sometimes we actually had somebody on from Goodstock, which is a soup uh, company, and he said that he was moving too fast that at a certain point he had to slow down. So how do you scale, especially like in, um, like I would consider you guys a retail concept, right? Like a culinary retail concept. How do you scale that and how do you know what the pace is that you should be taking into account? Yeah, I mean, I think that's key because if you, I mean, intuitively, if you open up stores that are too close together, 
and you source from each other, you're not going to get incrementality. You're going to walk away probably net net of, of, you know, not driving the growth you need. Right. So I think that's an, a well understood concept. Uh, I think it's important to sort of understand the layout of New York and understand the different cultures of what you're doing. Um, Union Square is probably going to have a, a healthy tourist element. Um, it's going to be a lot of folks that go to the potentially the farmer's market and want something tasty, but still plant-based after that. I think it's a very unique crowd that feels like a really strong play that would be an incremental to say the nearest location, which may be all the way up on 22nd street and the flat iron, or maybe down by bleaker, which is much more NYU heavy. So I'd say the location feels like it's distinct enough that, yeah, this one, I, I have very little doubts that we've picked a good location to create a unique, uh, audience and offering. Um, but yeah, at a certain point, New York could be saturated, but look at this country, right? I mean, we have one in LA, like that feels like a gap for me. Yeah, um, and I would agree. I think that there's so much opportunity and there is definitely a large landscape for you to open stores. I just, I'm thinking more from like a financial standpoint, like what are the things that you have to take into account? And it's never ideal to close a store. So like you want to make sure as a marketer that you're continuously driving traffic. So what do you think about when you're not only opening stores, but can you sustain the traffic? What kind of marketing initiatives do you have to support it with? Yeah, I, mean, I think we have a, a strong effort early on in terms of field marketing, where we uh, look at the landscape of who we're at, and we make sure that we're connecting with the local uh, businesses or people that are appropriate. So in certain locations, we're doing hardcore corporate marketing. Like We want to get in front of all the decision makers who are ordering the office lunches, that office a- administrator who is sort of the lifeline of big offices like this WeWork. If I was opening up one next door to this WeWork, I would be begging for the right person in this office to let us do a sampling and just stand in a key area at lunchtime and let them have maybe a little sampling of our quinoa taco salad, let them have our gluten-free chocolate chip cookie, letting them have a couple of those key items that hopefully give them the experience and the confidence that they should uh, give us a sample. Conversely, if you're in a more uh, residential area like the South Street Seaport, um, it's going to be a little more residential in that space. We're going to go for a different audience and try to deliver a different value proposition uh, where it's more building managers, maybe being in the lobby of some key buildings. Again, a similar idea in terms of the sampling, uh, but in the end, the uh, intent of the right person uh, changes. And I think that's how we get the kind of momentum. And of course, it's block and tackle, get as many emails as we can, be able to communicate them so we can let them know when cool stuff is happening in the store. You want to drive them in with that type of one-to-one conversation. I agree with you. I don't think that sampling is dead. I think that in-person is super strong. Do you feel like one one sampling experience is all that you need or do you sometimes invest more in sampling? What, what does that strategy look like on your end? Yeah, I mean, we don't typically think about an individual person as a needing a multiple sample experience. I think you are covering a, a large ground where it's possible that one person will come twice. We did a nice, uh, I think, a really nice effort for back to school this year, really thinking about NYU and some of our schools in the Boston and Providence area and trying to connect in restaurant weeks and being at a, on, a, on a 50% off burger deal. And so we were at several different events where it's definitely possible that we ran into some students multiple times. I I'd say most people probably only saw us once. Um, And then in the end, it's about giving them a value, giving them a simple bounce back coupon, which allows them to come in for uh, a discount on their next sampling and and hopefully try it and enjoy it. Um, I think the key for me is not giving 
ongoing, long-term uh, value. So I don't think it's it's great to have someone who only go to you if you give them 50% off into perpetuity. Right. I would agree with you on that. Sure. Yeah. The margins aren't big enough in most industries where you can sustain that. But it is very valuable to give someone an opportunity, whether it's a little bit of sampling in a, a, a taste and then a full meal at a slight discount that enables them to say, you know what, this is worth becoming either a go-to for lunch or a, a great girls' night experience or when my parents come in town and giving them the thinking of, hey, I know how to use this in my normal repertoire and uh, I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't actually gone in and tried it. So that's kind of the way I like to think about it and I think that's a good way to make sure that you're uh, creating a new consumer funnel in a way that actually is going to deliver a long-term healthy business. So do you ever like A-B test whether a coupon is going to drive more traffic or a free cookie or a cupcake or something else um, in terms of what the conversions look like and and what motivates people to, to come back in store? Or do they just forget the coupon altogether? So it's a great question. I think uh, one of the first projects I had with the field marketing team, you know, this is a, a more junior team who sort of, you know, take it, the, take it on to sort of do sampling as they would intuitively think, which is sort of what you'd expect, which is getting people to try pro- food and giving them a value. Right. And my challenge to them is exactly that. I said, how do you know what you're doing is working? And they said, well, you know, there's some redemptions, some are good, some are bad. And I said, well, what if you think about this like a research project and like, thinking about like four or five things that could work. Those things could be, does does it matter if you give the food or do you need to just give the coupon? Does it matter if you're in corporate or does it matter if you find them elsewhere? Uh, do you get better redemptions if you have a push cart and you're in front of NYU giving out cookies or do you have to set up a formal event? Think about four or five different hypotheses, do those several times, get data points, and then start to compare on how those experiences actually performed against each other. And that's how you know on whether you're actually improving what you're doing versus just doing the same thing over and over again, assuming that that is ultimately probably good enough. Right. So you test them with gathering the data points. How did that work out? So I wanted to give them sort of like six to eight weeks to really get the data going. The the first part that is, I'd say, a win is they're incredibly engaged. They love the idea that there's a systematic way to approach and improve because they're smart people who just weren't aware that there's actually a way to be more quantitative in something that kind of feels a little bit qualitative. Right. And so that's the win for me is I have a team of people that are excited to try new things. And I think in six to eight weeks, I'm sure some of them will be better than others. And then we'll have an open conversation about what worked, what didn't, and we'll, we'll start to scale up and move onto some new tests and sort of keep pushing the envelope and where we could go with this longer term. So when you're, t- when you're tasking them with the responsibility of gathering data points, do you actually give them resources or is it more like just make keynotes on what's been working on your end? Um, I mean, I'm open to giving the resource that's needed to test the idea. Right. Um, yeah, they said we're doing 20%. It, can we? Can your PNL support 30% off and try different coupon values? I said absolutely. We could support in this initiative any idea that can deliver that one thing, which is that one thing of a uh, a potential loyal customer. Right. Right. And 30%, 40, even 50%. If you can find me someone that'll come in once a month for the next five years, I'll gladly give away a huge amount of of value that first time to create a really good experience. So I think through that, it allowed them to feel confident that they could try a lot of different tools and tactics. Um, And yeah, I mean, any resource they need, uh, I'm available and I'm here to sort of deliver that. I want to take the roadblocks out of their challenges to give them the best chance to succeed. So 
I don't remember them asking for my contact information. Are you working on a loyalty program right now to gather the the return rate of customers, or how does that? What does that look like on your end? Yeah, so we definitely at, at field marketing events try to get as many emails as we can. Um, it doesn't always uh, necessarily work. Different events are, are more inclined to get emails. Sure. Um, if you look at uh, the best of Boston, it was a burger competition uh, mid-August. Yeah. We came in as the number six burger in all of Boston. Uh, the only one in the top 20 that was was uh, vegan, and not only that, we came in sixth. Which, Amazing. Which says this is a pretty damn tasty burger for those who haven't tried it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was an event that was insane, right? I mean, we didn't have a chance to get emails because there's a, as you know from these type of events, a huge amount of movement and movement and movement, and people want an in and out, try the burger, and come back and then either vote for you later on or vote for one of your competitions. Right. In an event like that, uh, the idea that I had, again, this was a creative plus marketing sort of, I think, brilliant idea was make something memorable, not just from the food perspective, but from a t-shirt perspective. And um, I think the t-shirt said, we've got big buns. Cute. So, I love that. <laughs> so, so while you're getting the hustle and bustle, you know, you might not even remember the name, but you remember the guys who had the funny t-shirt and that in itself, I think, creates a part of the, the Bike Chloe experience, which is really fun, delicious food, but also like a great personality. Like we're fun and if we don't exude that in everything we do, including experiential. I think that's a miss for us. So that kind of thing I feel is like a no brainer for me. So where else are you investing time and energy when it comes to marketing strategies? Like what are your top priorities right now? Yeah. I mean, I think as a business innovation, you're, you're, we've already talked a bunch about that one yeah. is critical. Um, we actually talked about one of the other big ones, which I would call localization. And that's the recognition that, you know, uh, Bleaker, uh, is a, obviously an NYU type of campus, right? So why are we not investing a huge amount of resources in Bleaker to really connect with that NYU consumer, to talk to them, to uh, give them relatable values, be there in their their welcome weeks and the places that like that, and that yet switch that to you know 1385 or Flatiron where it's more corporate, right? right? Be more local and understand that a one-size-fits-all strategy isn't, isn't necessarily the right play for a business like ours. Uh, I think that's the second thing. And then uh, a third is sort of that personalization, which is uh, working, uh, and it should be out in about a month or so, in a new app, right? And the team, uh, really all of us, is putting some muscle towards uh, evolving the app. And I think what's critical about that is that uh, right now we're not collecting the type of data that we need to. And once we become smarter about what our customer wants, we can do more, right? right? Right now I feel like it's a little bit of a black box where we create just this awesome experience, but we could do so much more to connect with you in a one-to-one nature. We've got to first get that data. And without data, we can't really customize and cater to you. And, and even if it's something as simple as we want to give you a, a, a suite on your birthday, there's really no way to do that right now in a simple way, but we want to give you a little message. Hey, it's your birthday. By Chloe's here to give you a little something fun and brighten up your day. So something that we don't think about as much, the localization component, you said it the right way, right? Like I feel like everybody is so focused on driving traffic in store that they don't think earlier, how do we drive the traffic in store? What are the communities that we should be connecting with that you should be at on-campus events for NYU? Or like even the one location on 22nd and Flatiron, you're not that far from like a Baruch or from an FIT. So like how do you get more involved in, in those campus experiences? Um, we, and it, by the way, it doesn't get lost on me because I work in an institution, how many students there are. So they they typically have strong buying power, right? 
Um, I think that the part around the localization that we forget about is like not only the universities, but like how do you get a little bit more ingrained in like all these local stores, right? There's so many of them. And um, that's been like an ongoing conversation where like if there is a soul, soul cycle, you see like a sweet green across the street, right? Like, like where are there opportunities to collaborate with these uh, smaller businesses in that local area? What do you guys do for, to support those initiatives? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, yes, I think there's a lot of opportunity with local businesses. Yeah. My, my lens is always to sort of make an oversized impact and sort of figure out who is a decision maker that is going to be a- enable us to Keyword, te- right, decision, decision maker. maker. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I just want to get on the promo if you ever have one. Yeah. So, yeah. so who is the decision maker that has an oversized impact, right? So um, it's a little that but idea of that that corporate person, that residential person, uh, that that business owner, if they have a large impact and have a large imprint on who they could potentially get the word out to, that to me is is the anchor point of who I want to talk to. So for local businesses, the reality is we don't have a team of 30, right? I have a team of two. One does New York, one does Boston and, and Providence. So with that lean and mean team, I'd love to be in every single uh, you know, sort of uh, storefront and every gym and everywhere that there's any lens of like health, right. but like in that balanced sort of way, because that's really where we more play of like that balanced, healthy person. Um, I think it's a great opportunity. Are we able to impact all of those places? Potentially, no. What I would say is that is where something like paid social comes in. Sure. Right. We amplify our field marketing efforts by doing a really good paid social effort and connecting with folks who are in our target demo uh, with, I think, some really fun content and letting them know what's going on with us, whether it's the new cheeseburger, whether it's just some some evergreen content with our amazing salads, and hopefully having a campaign in a couple of months out, letting everyone know that we have this amazing new chicken. And I think that people would love it if they tried it. Right. So obviously you've had a long career in marketing and you've uh, you've done some really cool things. I think you mentioned that you have an experience that you worked on previously that um, wasn't necessarily a fail, but it could have been done better. Can you share a little bit about that with us? Yeah, I mean... I think I think the things that work for experiential marketing for me is really being consumer centric, um, and I think that sounds intuitive, but and yet most people are very much brand centric, uh, and they kind of bring the consumer in as well. Will the consumer be okay with X, Y, and Z? And that's how they slot in the consumer role. I think the risk with experiential, the people feel like if they're too consumer centric, the brand gets lost, and ultimately you don't end up getting any awareness and visibility uh, back towards what your objective was, which was people need to get a positive experience. I think it's blending both, but I always typically try to start consumer centric. And one example where where I feel like it didn't occur that way was uh, you know on a large beer brand declining year over year. One of the retailers said, you know, we're not happy with the performance, and as such, we think you need to do something. Give us a plan, sort of right away. And there wasn't an immediate plan available. And the retailer said, you know what, my idea is do sampling. If you do that, uh, that 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 should you know, be enough to satisfy us. And inherently I felt 
like that was the wrong play, right? Um, a large brand with mass awareness that everyone sort of tried, tasted, ate, whatever the different brand is, it, it rarely ever does a lot of reappraisal to try retasting it, right? It, it's like a been there, done that. I, I'll say, um, uh, I'll use Coke because it's not obviously a Coke example to say, if Coke's big idea was, oh, if we want to drive more traffic in Walmart, we should do a tasting of Coke. I just don't think that that's going to drive the ROI that they need. And I've never seen a Coke tasting. Right. right. So that was an example where I understood why the retailer wanted it because it creates an element of theater and excitement to have anyone sampling and tasting. Um, it's one of the things people love about a Costco is people love going in and sampling. And even if it's something you've had before, the idea of getting something free and, and it's cool and it's different. I get why the retailer would put that forward, but my confidence level and an ROI towards that is extremely low. Right. Uh, I would almost argue it'd be zero. And so for me, I worry about those type of initiatives. And in the end, sometimes there isn't a better idea in the immediate moment. It ends up getting pushed through. And you know, you wonder why is no one like red flagging that this can't possibly be the best way to spend our time. But when you're in a business that's struggling a bit, sometimes you go with what's easiest and that's a retailer suggestion. Right. It definitely wasn't consumer centric. And I definitely don't believe from what I saw that I was going to deliver an ROI. So did that occur? Did it not deliver an ROI? It did not deliver an ROI. So if you could readdress that situation now, what would you have done differently? Well, I think it takes a level of confidence to someone to go back into the retailer and say no. Right. But 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 not say no in a way that's uh, uh, you know a, a flat no, but come back with a better idea. Yep. And one of the hardest side things, of course, is that ideas, great ideas, don't grow on trees. And they also don't grow on 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 uh, on you know when you're looking at your watch saying we got to present something back in an hour right right idea people I like to think I'm one I, I definitely think you're one thanks sometimes we need cheers. a little bit. cheers thanks sometimes we need a little bit of time to to marinate to think about an idea to IDA and to figure out you know uh, you know it's sort of the uh, the yes ands the improv yes and of yes I hear you that I want to do something to support the business and here's the idea that I want to put forward to make an impact, that yes, the end approach is much, much more impactful than saying, no, that's a terrible idea. Except yes, and takes a little bit of time and that takes a lot of coordination. And I just don't know that this particular project, we were willing to wait the time to figure out for the better idea. And potentially that's what needed to happen to really go for an idea that I think was good enough to make the retailer happy in the moment to an idea that's going to deliver value so the retailer is actually happy after the fact. I think that that's important. To be successful in a meeting, you have to push yourself to be uncomfortable to be comfortable, right? Yeah, I mean, for me, I spent I spent years, you know, I'd say nervous, very nervous about the big presentations. And I would really want to rehearse it and go over it and over it and, and know every point and try to try to predict every question. And I was told, have a backup slide for every possible idea that could come up. So if so it does come up, you could say, oh, I've got a slide to address that. And then through improv, it made me realize that's nonsense. Right. You don't need the slide. You need the confidence to communicate an idea effectively, to get head nods in the room, to actually be actively listening so you're understanding not what just they're asking, but what the room really needs to know. If you're doing those things, you're going to be an incredible presenter and deliver way more value than saying, oh, great, appendix slide number 73 addresses that exact same point. That's not what they're looking for. They're looking for a dialogue and a conversation, and that only happens if you feel comfortable in the room to be able to like 
vibe with that person and really connect with them on a much more deeper and a much more intellectual level. So. I like that. I like that uh, point strictly because I, at a certain point, I'm an entrepreneur. I, I've i done like a, a ton of different presentations and pitches. And you know what I always found fascinating? The longer the presentation, the less the conversation, right? So when I started like shortening my decks, when I made my slides like seven to 10 slides as opposed to 20 slides, I stopped answering all their questions in the slides and eventually it became a two-way conversation and that's when I th- I found that it became more valuable. Yeah, I mean the known statement that I hear a hundred times is the hardest deck is less than 10 slides. Right. Because you're actually thoughtfully nailing down the core of what you're trying to say and not all of the possibilities that could come up, but if they get one thing from the conversation today, here's what they get. And and that's that's a hard thing to do. And, and I agree with you. You're someone who's comfortable in a room communicating and vibing with the room and sensing when the conversation's off topic and probably rerouting where you need to be. Those are skills that I think a lot of people don't inherently have. Yep. And something like improv absolutely will help you get a little more comfortable and hopefully uh, refine that skill a little bit. I never thought about this, but uh, LinkedIn reminded me that I've been there. I've been at FIT for like the past nine years. And um, I guess in a way that's been my form of improv, right? So like I've had to push myself out of my comfort zone. I have continuously presented not only in front of classes, but in front of larger audiences. And I, just like you said, I have to recircle the topic to be more relevant. I have to make sure that we're continuously on track. I have to always be mindful of the time, right? Like all of those elements, super fascinating to me. I Maybe from now on, I will recommend to some of my students to start taking improv classes. I think yes. Uh, I think, you know, I'd be happy to come in one day. We could do some fun, you know, interactive, sure. uh, you know, session. Uh, we've talked, I think, in the past, maybe about me coming in anyway. So I think, I think I'd be fun. And I've only done it a couple of times, but at Enheiser, um, they asked me to do like a f- my first six months in. They're like, okay, can you give like a four day session on like what innovation does at Anheuser Busch? I was like, oh man, that's so much time me talking. I, I really don't want to do that. Can I make the session my own? And they said, absolutely. And I did maybe like two, two and a half hours of presenting and then Q&A on innovation and an hour and a half on improv. Right. And just doing some basic exercises to get people to be a little bit silly and comfortable. And these are all like 21, 22 year olds who inherently are still in that phase when silly is okay, right? Sure. Um, they're not all serious all the time. I don't know. I'm so okay with silly and uh, and comfortable all the time. So yeah, and I don't fall into that 21-year-old category. Yes, I think 100%. I mean, I, I, I love, uh, it's an interesting world. I, I was laughing uh, recently, remembering not that long ago, uh, we were staying late with somebody who was their first day, and on the first day, to his credit, and he was staying super late, it was nine o'clock, and I was with one of my colleagues, and he was a third person there, and obviously he was mostly just listening and taking some notes and trying to follow, and all of a sudden he picks up his phone, and I see him, and I see him taking a, a selfie, and I'm like, is that Snapchat? He's like, he's like... Yeah, man. He's like, I want to let my friends know what I'm doing. I'm yeah. not, he's like, and he was Snapchatting. You know, I would have thought when I was 21, I'd be super annoyed. Oh, I'm stuck here at a meeting. And he was thrilled to be there as long as he was able to let his friends and his network know, here's what I'm doing. It's pretty cool. I'm smiling. I'm grooving. I'm in this great office. I'm working on a project. And it was his way of, of self-expression that made him feel actually like it was a really fun experience. And if that's all it takes for someone to be super engaged, very different than when I was 22 and how I would have approached uh, that situation. But I think it's amazing. 
You know, it's funny that you say that. There's There have been studies that like in the middle of your day, when people take a 10-minute social media break, it's almost e- equivalent to what a cigarette break used to be. So a 10-minute social media break kind of says to them, okay, I'm caught up. I feel like I've had exposure with the outside world. Now I can be a little bit more focused on what my te- next task or responsibility is. And, and I don't think that we allow people to have that mindset as much as we should. I mean, once they get a chance to respond to text messages, take a look at what other people are doing, share maybe some things that they're doing, they feel a little more fulfilled. And I think we have to be a little bit mindful of that, not only as marketers, but as companies in general. Completely agree. Uh, the idea of like a water cooler conversation yeah. is is the same idea of just a few minutes of BSing, I think is incredibly important. Uh, I actually think not just from a mental perspective, but uh, we're going to have lower back problems and uh, wrist problems yep. and a lot of problems that are going to occur because we sit in a single motion, leaning in, squinting all day long. Getting up every so often is really good for you on a physical level. So I think on every level, we should all probably be doing that and, and not just zoning in uh, for a nine, 10 hour day. Totally. I agree with you. Andrew, this has been fantastic. Can you leave us with one piece of advice? Uh, I don't know, anything that you have learned and you would be willing to pay forward? Yeah. I mean, it's hard in that I haven't really practiced or rehearsed an idea. So it almost becomes like, what isn't cliche? And in the end, I think most of the great ideas maybe are a little cliche. It doesn't mean it's not truly authentic to who I am and my personal brand. Uh, and it's, it's have fun. It's really find a way to get get dirty, roll up your sleeves, and find the things that you are genuinely excited about. Yeah. Jump out of bed in the morning. Don't snooze. Get moving. Have that cup of coffee, and then go out and take on the world. And I always tell people, listen, five days a week, that's probably not going to be accurate. But if three days a week, you can't jump out of bed and you're like, I'm kind of fired up about what I've got going on today. It's absolutely the wrong place for you. And that's the time I would say to start looking around for something different. Awesome. I think this was fantastic. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for the invite. Thanks so much for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a quick review and feel free to hit me up on Instagram if you want to continue the conversation. I look forward to hearing from you guys.